Was that fun? I just love seeing every year we do this and every year I see the kids up here and I just think, okay, I wonder how we could sneak another one of these in. Just we'll we'll like re-celebrate VBS in December or something just for the fun of it. Because um, there's just there's an abandonment to them that we're a little hung up on. You know, I was standing in the back with the like six people on the aisle who stood up while everybody else was in the back was sitting down. And I'm thinking, okay, the kids are having fun. And all the adults are like, I don't know, am I allowed to do this? Is this okay in church? Yes, it is. It is okay. God enjoys it when you smile. If you have seen your children smile and smiled back at them just for the sake of the fact they were smiling, that is the experience God has when you smile, when you are enjoying things and when you're enjoying what's going on in life. Um, I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus as a complete counterculture guy. Now, um, I was born in the 60s. And so counterculture kind of means something different to me than it does today. And so the, the, the great uh, sort of emblem of counterculture, people wear this today without knowing what they're doing. But the great emblem of counterculture is the tie-dye t-shirt. If you're a child of the 60s, you know what I mean, right? This was the thing. Did you know you can get tie-dye hair now? I didn't know. I, I was looking for tie-dye t-shirt sort of things on the internet, and there was a tie-dye hair, so I had to go see how that works. Just, you know, in case God blesses me and my hair all grows back one day. I might, if I show up with hair, it may be tie-dyed. Um, but they, the, the, the idea of, of wearing tie-dye was sort of this, this anti-establishment Symbol. You know, most people in the day wore a collared shirt. A large percentage of them wear a tie. Many of them, even the working class, wore, wore a suit jacket to, to work. And they would put their suit jacket in their locker, put on their overalls, and go to work. And so for kids to, to, to take a t-shirt, which was underwear, to, to first wear it on the outside, and then to just wrap it up in little knots and, and dye it in weird colors so that all kinds of odd things came of it, was a real kind of in-your-face sort of stand-up-to-the-man behavior. You know, today, standing up to the man is a whole different sort of thing, kind of weird stuff going on as well today. There's a, another big counterculture moment, movement. But understand that the, against the Roman backdrop, against the backdrop of the ordered directed life of the Roman culture against the backdrop of Aristotle and Plato and everything that the Greeks had thrown at the world, Jesus is a crazy, wild counterculture guy. Against the backdrop of the people of his own religion, the people who were following God, who claimed the same religion as Jesus, were completely different in the way they thought about it. They honestly believed that if they kept things, kept the commandments correctly, if they did all of the, all of the laws prescribed by the rabbinic traditions correctly, that they would merit salvation from God and that there was no other way to do it. I mean, the sanctuary is right there with them. The, the lambs are being sacrificed and it's completely going past them. They're seeing the sacrifice of the lamb again and again and again. And for most of the culture, they see the sacrifices of, of the lamb as a demand of a God who requires blood. And they don't recognize the symbol of a God who will give his own blood. They just completely miss it. 
into the context of this very ordered, structured, demanding, law-abiding culture of Rome, into the structure of the, the reasoning that's come from Greece, and into the structure of this Hebraic understanding of how you approach God, comes Jesus. And as Jesus arrives on the scene, he just starts mucking things up all over the place. He starts talking in ways that people aren't used to people talking. He starts doing crazy things like healing sick people, raising dead people. He's making quite a a disturbance, kind of a, a mess of the religious proprieties of the day. You know, you just can't have dead people coming back to life. It messes everything up. We have a plan. We have a program. These people go in the grave. People mourn. We can't be breaking up the mourning with resurrections. It's, not, it's, it's just not done. And yet Jesus blows in on the scene. He gathers up a bunch of blue-collar followers. And he just starts rampaging through the religious norms, creating all sorts of a mess. Today in the book of Matthew, we're in chapter 5. And I just want to read to you the end of four and the beginning of five as we start talking a little bit about sort of the foundation pillars. I'm glad that we have some Roman pillars around the room because these are the foundation pillars Jesus lays out. And they're things you've heard. If you've been around church very long, you've heard some of these before. I hope by the end of today you get a little bit of a different understanding of a bit of this. But I I just want to get you some context to what we're talking about, this countercultural behavior of Jesus. Um, Beginning at verse 23, we read through this a little bit last last week. And Jesus went about all of Galilee teaching in the synagogues. He's gone north. Galilee is the northern end. It's where the lake is. When you've seen the, uh, the maps of, uh, of Jerusalem, there's that lake up in the north. It looks kind of like Lake Tahoe. That's the lake. That's Galilee. Um, and by the way, if you're looking for Matthew in your Bible, Matthew is about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. It's where the New Testament begins. If you're, if you're cruising through there trying to find it, you get to Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Back up a little bit. Matthew is about two-thirds of the way through. If you're, um, if you're on your device, just enter M-A-T-T. It'll pop up. And Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Now imagine the stir. He's going around preaching the good news of the kingdom's arrival and he's starting to heal people and it's starting to create a bit of a stir. Then his fame went throughout all, now catch the names, Syria. Is that a Jewish community? No. And they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted. Now imagine, the nation of Syria starts bringing the sick into Israel to meet Jesus so that they might be healed. Now, not only do these Jewish people have this crazy preacher on their hands, they've got all these crazy Gentiles migrating into their community, Syrian refugees. Hmm. Hmm. Like the headlines of the paper. And all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptic, paralytic, and he healed them. So all these people keep streaming in. Do you know what NIMBY is? Do you know what that little little word means? Not in my backyard. You see, most of us believe in good things going on. We believe in good things happening, right? We believe people should take care of the, of the, of the poor and the sick and the, those who are in need. But, but we have this idea that it should be done over there somewhere because if it happens here, then it, ah, there goes the neighborhood. 
Right? And here's Jesus that all these Syrians are coming in. Imagine what this felt like to the Jews. Imagine what this felt like to his own people. Do you think Jesus is a little disruptive? A little counterculture. Now, I know if, 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 you're, uh, if, if you're on one political so- side, you may be looking at this and saying, wait a second. If you're on the other politi- political side, you're about to start cheering. You better not start. You, neither of you better start anytime soon because I'm going to offend both of you before I'm done. Okay? The bottom line here is Jesus is absolutely counter to the norms of the culture of the day. And he's messing with everything. He's just changing the way people look at things. Verse 25, and great multitudes followed him from Galilee, that's where the Jews are, from Decapolis, that's where the Romans and Greeks are, from Jerusalem and Judea, more Jewish territory, and beyond the Jordan. And now you're just talking about crazy people out there. Those people out in the desert, beyond the Jordan. Why they even live there, no one knows. But there they are. And Jesus is gathering this kind of weird crowd together. Jews from Jerusalem and Judea and from Galilee. Romans from the Decapolis and Greeks from the Decapolis and Syrians. And people from nondescript areas out in the desert. They're all showing up following Jesus around. The crazy mixed up rabble of the followers of Christ. The crazy mixed up rabble of the foundations of the church you belong to. These are our ancestors. These are the people who start recognizing who Jesus is. And you look around you. Consider the people in the seats around you. Consider where they're from. People from all over the world sitting in this room. And it started in Galilee when Jesus starts to just disrupt the norms of how things are supposed to work. He just makes a complete mess of what everybody understands as an orderly, trackable, predictable religion. And he just throws it all out there and just starts blowing in the wind. Verse chapter 5 begins. Remember the insertion of, of chapters and verses is a much later thing. So this would have gone straight from that phrase to the next. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan and seeing the multitudes made up of all of those people. He went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Would you join me for a a word of prayer again as we uh, talk a little bit about the word? Father, as we open the scriptures today, we pray for your spirit to be our guide. As you guided Matthew in the writing of these passages, we pray that you would open our hearts, our understanding, and that you would guide us through our developing of our our understanding today. In Jesus' name, amen. So here I want to just take you quickly through. Jesus had called his disciples. The previous, the, in the previous chapter, he starts calling his disciples together. 
He has traveled all over the area preaching. Crowds of people are following him, and he sits down to teach his disciples, okay? So you got the picture, you got what's going on. Bunch of people are there. Jesus goes up on the hill, probably because the crowds are so big that he, they can't really hear him, he can't really see them, and so he leaves the edge of the lake and goes up the hill. Now, don't think he climbed a 5,000-foot mountain. If you've been to the Sea of Galilee, there are no 5,000-foot mountains next to the Sea of Galilee. So he literally walked up a little hill. Okay, so the, the, the area where they think this actually took place is the last time I was there was a banana field. Okay, and it's, it's kind of bowl shaped. It kind of it, it kind of comes down like this as it comes down to the to the uh, lake. And so it's a great place for this sort of thing to have taken place. It, it, it has a, a, a natural sort of. Of a shape to allow a crowd to gather, be seen and to hear. And Jesus sits down. Okay, Matthew's, Matthew's expressing some things very carefully. Now, I have, to, I have to admit to you today that I'm going to take you on a little bit of a, uh, what preachers call an exegetical ride. We're going, to take, we're, going to, we're going to pull out a little Greek. We're going to talk a little bit about some comparative text. But please stay with me. I know that some of your eyes gloss over when we start doing that sort of stuff, but stay with me. It's going to be very much worth it in the end. I, I promise you. I promise you. It's going to be very much worth it in the end. So he sat down. Jesus sat down. So Jesus did this. So what? But you have to understand what sitting down means when a king does it. In all of the cultures, Greek, Roman, and Hebrew cultures, when the king sits down, he's about to get more authoritative, not less authoritative. Maybe all of our preachers should preach from chairs. I think it might be a good development for the preachers. My feet hurt at the end of the day like this. But the, 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 the cultural understanding, Jews... Romans and Greeks all would have understood it. When he sat down, things were about to get serious. Okay? That's what this meant. This is a, so that, this is part of why it's sticking out to Matthew. Things are about to get serious here. He just sat down. And so the whole audience went, oh, he sat down. Where'd he go? He sat down. Okay. We better sit down too. And so the audience sits down. His disciples came close. So the people closest to Jesus, the followers most connected with Jesus, those who the people are beginning to recognize as his people, gather in close. So what do we have? We have, we have the leader sitting down and the people who know the leader trying to get close so they can hear. So if you see a bunch of people rushing to the front of the crowd to try to catch what's going on, what does it do to your interest level? Ah, wait a second. Not only did he sit down, all of his buddies just got close. All of his buddies just sat up close to him, just sneaked up to the front of the line. Okay, something's going on. Something's about to happen here. And the anticipation would build just a little. So he sat down and his disciples stepped up and he opened his mouth. This is what I do when words are about to exit. Trying to talk when you're opening your mouth is very difficult. Nobody can really understand, and you certainly can't hear in the back. Right? It sounds like a stupid thing to say. Excuse me. Biblically stupid. It sounds like a stupid thing to say. He opened his mouth. Well, of course he opened his mouth. Do you close your mouth to speak? But it's a statement, again, in the context of the culture. 
in the context of the culture, this is a statement about he's about to make a proclamation. Matthew is, is building the anticipation for the hearer. There's another little piece of this you can blow right by without, without noticing it. Do you know who spoke from the mountaintop to establish the foundation pillars of the nation of Israel? Moses. Remember? From the from edge of Mount Sinai, Moses speaks to the people to give them the foundation pillars of the, of the family of Israel. Matthew is not unaware of this. And I think that's why this story is sticking out in Matthew's memory about 40 years later. See, remember that time when Jesus had the big crowd from all over the world gathered round and he went up on the hill and he sat down and we gathered around him and he just began to speak. This is, this is supposed to be, and, I, and the problem is, here we are, a continent and a half away, across an ocean, with a, a completely modern culture. Has, we've lost contact with all of the things that make this kind of anticipated. I mean, this should be like a countdown clock. If you're, you're watching the countdown clock and it's 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, Five. There's nothing even going to happen and some of you are getting a little anxious. That's what this should be to the crowd. That's what it should have been to the reader. The reader's looking at this and he goes, whoa, big crowd. Up the mountain, sat down, disciples came, opened his mouth to speak. Everybody be quiet. E.F. Hutton's about to say something. That's what this should feel like. Matthew is not... Just throwing words out there by accident. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he's building a sense of the importance of the moment. And he taught as he always taught. Now, I wanted to tell you this because here's my first little entry into the Greek. I'm sorry. I'm just going to apologize beforehand. Isaac, can you hold the bottom of that? I'm going to apologize before this, before I start, because... I'm going to do this a couple times to you. Thank you. Not get water, but get, get a little Greek on you. Okay? Paul uses the imperfect tense, or I'm sorry, Matthew uses the imperfect tense here instead of the, the aorist tense, which is the past tense. An imperfect tense means it's, an, it's a past experience, something that happened, but it is normally continuing. So it's a, an, an activity that you would do, but you always do, that you continue to do, that is repeated. So this is why I phrased it the way I did. And he taught as he always taught. So he went up the mountain, he sat down, his disciples came, he opened his mouth, and he taught as he normally taught. Matthew is even pointing out to his audience, this is the norm for Jesus. This is what he kind of does. This is the way he goes about his business. Okay, you weathered the imperfect tense. So Matthew's comment in the Greek is, these are the authoritative words and ways Jesus taught his disciples. I thought that would be more fun. These are the authoritative words and ways Jesus taught his disciples. This is what Jesus does. And this is the way he does it. So now he goes up the mountain like Moses. He sits down like a king. He calls his disciples close by and he begins to speak. 
And these are the first words out of his mouth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, have you heard these before? Now, when you hear these, do they ring through you like an echo through a cathedral? Blessed are the poor. Do they do do something? They grab you? No, when we read these things, we read them like we're asleep. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Next blessing. And we just read through them. No big deal. Why is Jesus doing all this authoritative stuff and then coming up with this? Can he do better than this? He is God in human flesh. He's got to do better than that. By the way, this is not a blessing on spiritual weakness. This is not a blessing on spiritual weakness. Do not attempt to weaken your spirituality so that you will get this blessing. This is not a blessing on spiritual weakness. Jesus is actually simply stating a fact about the kingdom. I need Daryl. Drumroll. Because something's not getting through. Because I'm looking at your faces and you're like, and? This is profound stuff right here. I'm going to have to dig some Greek out so you'll really start believing that it's profound now. But I want you to get, we don't understand the power of what was said by Jesus in the moment. Climbed up the mountain, sat down, disciples gathered, opened his mouth, and began to teach with the authority and power that he normally would teach with. And we just kind of read this and go, oh yeah, okay, okay, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, first we kind of look at it and go, poor in spirit, that's kind of a weird phrase. Why are we blessing those guys? It seems like kind of we bless the wimps, we bless the wimps. Here come the meek, we're going to bless them too. Or we're just blessing the wimps all the time. Christianity is for wimps and we bless those people. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So, so let's look at the word blessed before we get too far along. Okay? Let's look at the word behind the word blessed. The Greek word, makarios. Okay? The Greek word that's being used right here is a word that stands for the joy that the gods feel. In fact, this word is only really used in the Greek, in normal Greek passages to talk about the gods. Humans don't have this kind of blessing. It's a blessing. It's a joy that does not need anything from the outside to maintain it. It's a joy that's intrinsic to who you are. It's a joy that bubbles out of you. It's a joy that is your experience from such a deep place that it's not moved. It's not changed by happenstance. Nothing impacts it from the outside. It dwells in you and it wells up from you. It's joy that lives inside. Okay. Now, Jesus doesn't speak Greek probably to this crowd. Jesus' normal language is Aramaic which is kind of a, 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 a version of Hebrew. The Aramaic here, pulled out of the Hebrew, is Ashir. And it's the idea of a continuous blessing. Do you remember when Jesus is standing there with the woman at the well? Do you remember he says to her, you should have asked me to give you something to drink, and I would have given you living water that would have bubbled up from within you? That's the idea. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit because the joy they have comes from so deep within. It's a well within them that cannot be disturbed by outside experiences. We sometimes translate this happy. Right? Happy are the poor in spirit. But, and, but it doesn't make any sense because happy has this, this beginning part, this hap, which, which kind of tells us the problem with happy. Happy is affected by happenings. Happy is ha- affected by happenstance. Happy is affected by the moment. This is not that. This is the experience with Christ that allows you to smile when all trouble is breaking loose. I don't want to teach your children words you don't want them to say in church. This is what allows you to stand in the storm, shutters banging, horrible messes being gathered around you, and just be good. I got Jesus, I'm good. This is what allowed people to face the flames of martyrdom and sing songs. Blessed are the people who get real joy. The poor in spirit, because they have a joy that cannot be pinched out. Circumstances don't affect it. Secondly, you've read these things, right? Blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these, blessed are these. Have you looked carefully at your Bible? If you have a King James or a New King James, the R will be in italics. You know what italics are, right? That's the words are a little bent. If you have your Bible in your hand, the words are in italics. The R is in italics. You know why? Because there's no R in the original text. It'd be better if I turn it around. There's no R in the original text. So there's no blessed R. It's just blessed, which also messes this whole thing up. Now try saying that without the R. Blessed the poor in spirit. Doesn't, doesn't flow off the tongue, does it? Which is exactly why the translators put the R in there. Because they said, these people are not going to understand this unless we throw a, throw a verb in. Because there's no verb in this phrase. So we've got to put the R in so that they'll understand. Blessed are. These are the people who are blessed. The phrase isn't there. It's blessed the poor in spirit. Man. No? We'll keep trying. We'll keep trying. Blessed the poor in spirit. Does it help you see it? Okay, so let's go back. Let's go back to Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one has the same process. Now, Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. This is probably written in Hebrew. But but to translate process through to get through from there to the Aramaic to the Greek and to get you to understand it. Let's look at this passage. Blessed is the man who walks not in the in the counsels of the ungodly. Do you know the is isn't there? There's no is is. Shouldn't be an is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly. Is it true? Yes. Does it kind of just say, okay, you kind of read it and go, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, reasonable. Here's the King James, blessed is the man. King, New King James is the same. Here's the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. Um, the NASB is an attempt to, to translate the Bible as closely to the original text as possible and still make it make sense in English, okay? Now, every translation is trying to do this in some layer or, an, or another. NASB is trying to go word-for-word word translation. A lot of other translations are going idea for idea, so things can get moved around and lost a little bit. NASB translates it, How blessed is the man who... Walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. 
Now, they throw in the how to try to emphasize this a little bit, right? If you said, how amazing. If you said, amazing. How amazing. Do you see how the how kind of emphasizes a little bit? How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, I want you to catch this next one. The New Living Translation. This one is giving you the best picture of the Hebrew. It doesn't always do it, but it got it here. It nailed it here. Oh, the joys of those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Do you get a little bit of different emphasis? Oh, the joys of those who... You almost need like a guitar player to be doing this. Oh, the joys of those... Right? It's like, how do you emphasize this? How does it make sense? How do you push this out there so that a modern a, a group of people will get it? All oh, the joys of those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. The, the, the psalmist is saying, you want to really have an awesome experience with God? Don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It is so amazing. It's so joyful. All oh, the joys of those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That's the word. That's the ashir. Okay? Still about halfway back, you're, you're kind of going, I don't know what happens at halfway back, but about halfway back, like about the ninth row, something happens. We are shortening the new church. There's only 11 rows in it, so the walk to the back is going to be real easy for me. Hopefully the words will carry better. So catch what we're going here. I'm not going anywhere. Somebody change the next slide, please. It's not working for me. So without the R, in Matthew chapter 5, bring in the translation from the New Living Translation. Kick the R out. And now you have, all the joys of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, So Jesus' opening phrase, Jesus goes up the mountain like Moses, sits down like a king, draws his closest associates in close to him, opens his mouth and begins to teach, and he says, Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now do you get it? This is a lot more powerful, isn't it? Kick the R out and you get something out of this. You start moving into a translation that starts to put it in. It's why the Greek translator would use the word that only refers to the kind of joys the gods have. Because the person reading it in Greek would go, this is a weird way to say joy. This is the kind of joy that's extra, extra human. It's not, it's not human joy. This is joy from another place. This is total, far out, way, so, way groovy, tie-dye wearing, countercultural thinking. You know who's really having an awesome life? The poor in spirit. And people in the crowd are going, what? Did you hear what I heard? The man just said, all the joys of those who are poor in spirit. And he's now going through a whole list of these. And he's saying the same phrase every time. So, so as you're reading these now, as you go through these, you may want to make a note in your Bible here where it simply says, when you read blessed, read all the joys... And fill in the gap blank. All the joys of the poor in spirit. Now, I I don't know if you get that. I'm not sure you understand it. I'm not sure you're relating to it yet. But let's keep unpacking it just a little. Our tie-dye Jesus. So, biblical illustration. Jesus, Luke chapter 18, tells a story. 
Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a story. He says two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The whole audience go, oh yeah, we know these two groups. Good guys, bad guys, white hats, black hats. Yeah, the Pharisees, white hats, the, 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 the uh, tax collectors, black hats. It's clear. The Pharisee stood as he was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. <laughs> For opening line, do you just... Do not start that way with God. He might slap you right there. (laughs) Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Is this man poor in spirit? Is he a little proud in spirit? Yeah, his spiritual spiritual self-identification is, I got this together. I'm good. I got it. Okay, this is Jesus' illustration. Now, he starts out, what are, the, what are the pillars of the kingdom? You know what are the people who are having a great experience? You know what are the people with joy that bubbles up from a mip? They're the poor in spirit. Yeah. Groovy, eh? But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Proud in spirit, poor in spirit. Jesus finishes. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself Everyone who thinks they've got it wired, everybody who thinks they have God by the tail, everyone who thinks that they can make God do what they want, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Foundation pillar, beatitude number one. All the joys of those who are poor in spirit. He's just saying, you know who gets it? The poor in spirit get it. You know who understands how to get what to the heart of God? The humble, the poor. They get it, you guys. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They will get what those guys think they're earning. These people who are working and trying to, trying to get God to do what they want Him to do. They're trying to do by behavior the things that the poor in spirit do by recognition they are broken and in need of help. Oh, the joys of those who are poor in spirit. Man, those guys have the kingdom of heaven. Feeling groovy in my tie-dye. And if you're born after 1975, you don't understand that. Go look at an oldie show. Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit. And it's not just, oh, the joys. He went up the mountain. He sat down like a king. He drew his closest associates in close. And he opened his mouth and he said, Oh, 500, a thousand people have to hear him, right? So he's not whispering. Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everybody's like, I want the kingdom of heaven. How do they get it? Because they're poor in spirit. But wait a minute, I thought I got the kingdom of heaven by being really good at stuff. 
you know, I, I, I tithe every day, every week. I mean, I, my mint, my anise, my cumin, I'm going out to my vegetables and I'm counting carrots and I'm making sure every tenth one goes out. I, I got all of this down, God, come on, it's got to merit something. He goes, no, recognizing you don't have it down, that's what merits something. Because when you realize you aren't your only hope, I'll take your hand. Because if you're the only hope, you're hopeless. If your spirituality and your personal religiosity is what you're placing your hope in, Jesus says you're hopeless. Because without my help, you are hopeless. And if you think you've got it wired, you're not asking for help. You've got to come back and ask for help. I'll, you'll, you'll, we'll be yoked together And I'll drag you home because you aren't helping. I'll help you find the way. The idea of being yoked together with Jesus is because he knows where he's going. He knows how to get there. We need his help. If you think jumping into the yoke with Jesus is so that you can help him out with his work, you're kind of confused. Jumping into the yoke with Jesus is so that he can rescue your behind from the mess and the fire that will destroy you and get you home. Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit. John 16, 22, Jesus is talking about the sacrifice, the resurrection, the crucifixion. In John 16, he says to his disciples, some hard times are coming, guys. It's going to get difficult here for a while. And you will have sorrow. You will have tremendous sorrow. But then you will have joy. It's like when a woman is about to have a child, guys. He said, you know, it's suffering. It's hard. It's sorrowful as a a child is being delivered. When that child... When that child comes into the earth and, the, and the, the nurse hands the child to the mother, all of that sorrow and all of that pain turns to joy. He said, that's what it's going to be like for you guys. When, you, when the resurrection happens, the joy that's going to take place, the joy that's going to get a hold of you is a joy that no one will take from you. They will not be able to take it from you. The Apostle Paul will hang out in prison with a guard. And what will he do? He'll just keep preaching to the guard. He won't feel like he's some kind of miserable guy locked up in a prison to this mean old guard. He'll say, look, this mean old guard is locked up to me. He can't get away. I'm preaching to him. (laughs) Whatever comes your way, the joy's source is not exterior. It's interior. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's the conviction of the resurrection. It's the knowledge that you are saved because of the grace of Jesus and the coverings of His mercy. Once that joy is in you, all the joy of the poor in spirit, because those guys get it. Because those guys get the kingdom. Actually get, not just understand, but they get the kingdom. It's theirs. Because they fall on their knees and ask for help. Climbs up the mountain. Slips into his tie-dye. He gathers his closest associates in. And he begins to speak. With the authority of heaven, he speaks. And he looks out, big smile on his face, and says, Oh, the joys of the poor in spirit. Those guys 
have the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we would like to emulate those people. We would like to be on that page in our spiritual life. To walk in an understanding that we can't do this ourselves. To know that not only are you God in human flesh, but the crucifixion was for us to give us the opportunity to be with you. That the hope that we have is to follow you home. That no matter what else happens in our experience, that if we're walking along with you, we'll end up where you're going. On the porch, in the kingdom, with the Father for all eternity. Thank you. In Jesus' name.